the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 20, Rough Trail Ride. The three men set out before the sun broke over the trees. They had their backpacks lashed to the back of their saddles. Martin had his 31 pounds of silver split up into two plastic ammo boxes so they could drape on either side of Jasmine's flanks. The spaces inside were stuffed with extra socks and underwear to keep the silver from rattling. Horse hooves were loud enough without the enticing jing-jing sound of silver coins to attract attention. Through the brush underneath the dead power lines, a dirt trail wound back and forth between the towers. Years ago, it had been wide enough for a utility company truck. Weeds and small brush were eagerly reclaiming the open space. Dirt bikes and ATV riders managed to keep a narrower path cleared. In the soft dirt, the horse's hooves made minimal sound. The creak of saddle leather and the soft sputter from one of the horses was the only sound. Robert led the way. Martin rode in the middle. Diva didn't let Trevor fall far behind. He was still trying to find the rhythm. Martin was glad the power lines would take them around Nutfield. Even that town's non-criminals had a tendency to be grasping and opportunistic. He kept his eyes on the wooded edges of the power line cut. There was no one else up and around in the early morning. At the burned-out substation, there was a five-way intersection of power line cuts. One ran southwest, two ran northeast. Robert consulted his copies of the topo maps. It was good that Chief Berg was able to get his office copier to work using a pair of car batteries and an inverter. Martin's group would need detailed maps. We take this fork here, Robert said quietly. How are you boys doing so far? Got happy butts? Martin smiled and nodded, but it was not a totally honest smile. Trevor's response was more honest. Ah, said Robert. Well, remember, even the toughest cowboy had to get tough by riding. No one's born tough. By the end of this trip, you'll be one tough cowboy. Trevor didn't look convinced. Robert studied the map. We cross a stream a little farther up. Let's give the horses a break for food and water. You boys can hop down and stretch your legs. The break sounded better than it was in reality. Martin's thighs were tight and tired. He didn't want to admit that his tailbone hurt. Trevor was suffering dramatically enough for six men. All three horses lapped up the water from the little stream. Then they moved on to eating the sedges and young bluegrass from the bank. It's best not to stretch your legs too long, cautioned Robert. You'll stiffen up. Well, come on, Trevor, said Martin. You've got a lot of ground to cover before dark. The two of them mounted, without the extra hops. They followed the cut through low, rocky hills. The backsides of suburban developments could occasionally be seen through the trees. When they arrived at the Merrimack River, the power lines jumped across to the other shore. The three men had to ride north along the river road to get to the bridge. As they rode along the road's shoulder, Martin noticed skid marks on the pavement and the broken saplings where Quinn had driven into the river. 
he would have felt better if they had seen something definitive. The wide double bridge was unguarded. It was too far south for any of the Manchester gangs to put in any effort into controlling it. The span was too far from any sustainable settlement for some citizens to control it. The concrete structure quietly sat atop the river, an abandoned artifact of a vanished civilization, like a Roman aqueduct. Martin welcomed the isolation. Given the loud clatter of horseshoes on concrete, Robert put Peaches in a trot to get them over the bridge more quickly. Uh, we need to follow this turnpike south, said Robert. Our next power line cut is just south of the town of Merrimack. We should probably pick up the pace, so we're not in view for too long. Think you boys are up to an extended trot? Uh, gotta be sometime, said Martin. Let's stick to the river side of the northbound lanes. That'll put us in the shade of this tree line instead of out in the sun, like on the southbound side. Robert nodded and turned Peaches to cross the empty swirl of exit and entrance ramps. Once in the grassy shoulder, he put Peaches into a trot. Martin gave Jasmine a double poke with his heels. She needed little encouragement. She loved to trot. Diva followed close behind, whether or not Trevor used his heels. They followed the edge of the empty expressway. It had been months since the grid failure had brought traffic to an end, but the empty highway still struck Martin as odd. The few times that Martin had taken the turnpike was when his usual route, I-93, was closed due to a rollover or a cargo spill. Like 93, the turnpike always seemed to be full of cars, lanes full of taillights as far as one could see. Now, the faded line stripes look like cave paintings or hieroglyphs, markings belonging to a lost culture. As they left the turnpike to follow the power line cut, Martin relished the change of pace. He had not managed the frequent trots very well. His butt felt bruised before they had crossed the bridge. After trotting along the highway, it felt like someone had nailed his pants on with two wide roofing nails. Trevor's frequent complaints about a sore butt forced Martin to put on a brave face and suck it up. The power lines ran in a straight line up and down the hills, across fields and roads. The most direct route was seldom the easiest route for foot travel. Within the cut, a trail meandered along the general path of least resistance. The varied terrain slowed their pace. Martin's impatience chafed at that. He welcomed Jasmine's less rhythmic gait. Somehow having one's entire backside buffeted was preferable to having just two spots repeatedly pounded. When the power lines jumped over the Sauhegan River, the trio had to detour south, along the shore, to find Wildcat Falls. The river was shallower at the solid rock ledge of the upper riverbed. Despite the cold water, all three horses opted to stand in the water and drink their fill. Are we making good time? Martin asked. Progress seemed painfully slow with too many deviations. Uh, we're about as far as I thought we'd be, said Robert. He studied his folded map. Uh, maybe a little behind, but we can make it up. Not much ahead of us, except miles. Uh, when are we going to get something to eat? asked Trevor. Uh, my horse has been snacking left and right. I got nothing. Martin dug in his jacket pocket. Well, I've got some rabbit jerky here. Martin held up a roll of thin linen. Or some strips of fruit leather. 
He held up another roll of fabric. Oh, 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 throw me the fruit. Oh, that sounds good. Trevor licked his lips and held his hands out. Martin tossed the roll. It bounced off of Trevor's left hand. His right hand batted it back toward his chest, but the roll fell over his arm and into the river. Oh, whined Trevor. He watched the little cloth roll float down toward the edge of the fall and into the foam. I guess I'll have a jerky instead. Yeah, no throwing it this time. Come on, Diva. Come on. Hey, giddy up. Diva, come on. Trevor poked his heels into Diva's ribs, but she continued to drink. Come on, you stubborn horse. He hopped in the saddle a few times, as if it would help. It didn't. Remembering what Robert said about Diva's tendency to ignore direction, Martin pulled up on Jasmine's reins to cut short her drink. She looked back at him with what he took to be a disapproving glare. He steered Jasmine over to Diva. Once near enough to hand Trevor the packet, Martin let loose of the reins so Jasmine could drink more. Oh, thanks, man. Trevor pulled out a thin strip of tan pink jerky and gnashed on it like a dog with a new chew toy. Well, we should get going, said Martin. We have a long way to go before dark. Robert resumed, riding point. Martin watched the right side of the woods. Trevor's job was to watch the left. They had their long guns handy in scabbards, but otherwise out of sight. Heavily armed strangers tended to make people jump to conclusions. Nevertheless, they kept an eye out for anyone. The detour around Milford took advantage of an abandoned railroad bed that had become a hiking path. A golf course provided a private bridge to cross the river. Crossing the highway through the thinly settled area, they briefly encountered a few people. A few simply stared with a sort of guarded curiosity. A few ran away. They appeared to be folks tilling remote gardens, not perimeter guards. After Milford, they encountered a series of hills, some of them rather steep. The three men crossed a valley bottom that looked like a meadow, but verged on being a marsh. The horses' hooves made suction cup sounds as they walked through the matted grass and soft soil. The next hill was just as tall, perhaps a hundred feet in elevation above them, but the slope was gradual. The trail was sandy and becoming overgrown with weeds. Peaches suddenly stopped, whinnied softly, and shook her head. Robert tried to coax her on, but she refused. Martin pulled Jasmine to a stop. Well, what is it? I don't know. She just didn't want to go. Robert leaned over to study the path. He dismounted and stood beside Peach's head. What is it, Peach? The horse pawed in the sand and shook her head. Robert squatted down and picked at the weeds with a stick. Ah, better come have a look at this, he said over his shoulder. Martin swung his leg over the saddle. The ground seemed an awfully long way down. Once he had both feet on the ground, his legs felt rubbery. His walking had little dignity to it. That's far enough, Robert held out an arm. Look down here. Well, what? Martin didn't see anything. Fishing line stretched across the path. I didn't see it, but Peaches did said Robert. He gently pulled aside the tall, dead grasses. Beneath a cap fashioned from dry oak leaves sat a crude, homemade crossbow built around a small leaf spring. Three arrow bolts of thin rebar rested on the track. A booby trap? Martin asked. 
Good thing Peaches spotted the line. Those would have done some nasty damage to her legs. Martin made his way carefully back to Trevor and Diva. Were there more traps along this trail? Uh, Peaches spotted a booby trap across the trail, Martin explained. Yeah, way out here, said Trevor. Well, there's nothing. Actually, there's something, said Robert. He held out his map for Martin and Trevor to see. He pointed to a cluster of little black squares around the top of the hill that the power line crossed. Uh, there must be a newer housing development up on that hill. This map has some of the houses, but no new roads. With his binoculars, Martin could see the corners of two houses between the trees on the north side of the power line cut as it crested the hill. Those people laid this trap? asked Trevor. He looked around. You think there's more? Most likely, said Martin. His mental wheels were turning. It seems like a housing development on a hilltop would be a fairly defensible position. The fact that they've set traps suggests they don't have enough manpower for a proper defense. The traps would offset that. As much as I hate delays, I think we have to go around this hill development, try to connect up with the power line on the other side. Robert studied the map. I figure we're right about here, he put his finger on the map. If this trap marks something like their outer perimeter, we'll have to go left and follow this topo line until we cross this road, follow the edge of this swamp, and then reconnect. Well, that's pretty thick woods back there, said Martin. We're going to take the horses in there? That's not ideal, said Robert as he rummaged in one of his bags. But it's better than hitting one of these traps. He held up a piece of tack. Straps of leather with black squares attached to it. I'm going to put on my homemade blinders on beaches to protect her eyes. She's a bit of a brush hog at heart. She loves to push through the brush in the woods. But I can't risk her getting a branch poked in the eye. Well, what about our horses? asked Trevor. Uh, we got to go through the same brush. Diva don't want no poke in the eye. He patted Diva on the neck. I brought their fly hoods for that, said Robert. He held up two fabric tubes with what looked like tea strainers cut into them. These won't offer great protection, but it's something. I'll lead and try to make the clearest path. I'll try to cut back some branches I think will be dangerous. With the blinders and hoods fitted to their horses, the three pushed into the woods. Peaches put her head down and forged her way through the branches. Robert had his hands full of trying to fend off the upper limbs, lest they swept him off his saddle. Jasmine followed with her head down. Diva stuck so close behind Jasmine that her nose got slapped by Jasmine's thrashing tail. The woods were less dense as they followed around the south side of the hill. Robert found circuitous roots that avoided thick brambles. Hey, Martin called out softly. There's a narrow trail to our right. I've seen it said Robert. Since they set a trap on the power line trail, they probably have on that trail too. Safer in the woods, off the trail. Who was that? Trevor pointed toward a winding trail. A dark patch was barely visible between the leaves. Martin could see the dark patch too, but didn't want to stop and investigate. Well, who cares? Let's keep moving. No, let's check it out, said Robert. If it's another one of their traps, it'll be good to get a sense of what they do and what to watch for. Martin conceded the wisdom of better intel. He did want to know what signs to look for other than tripwires. He dismounted and approached cautiously. 
He looked down frequently for the shiny glint of fishing line. When he got to the path, he waved for the others to come see, too. Interrupting the narrow path track through the woods was a deep, round-edged pit. Inside the hole was the partially mummified body of a raider facing up. His X-tattoo was still visible on the dry, tight skin above the empty eye sockets. The body lay propped up on sharpened wooden spikes. One spike stuck out of the body's stomach. Other spikes bristled along the pit's bottom. Whoa, whispered Trevor. Oh, they got one. Maybe, said Martin, or maybe it's just a warning message. Notice that there's no dark stain around the spike through his belly? That's below the heart and between the lungs. It should have bled. I'm wondering if they killed this guy some other way, some less dramatic way, but dug this pit and put his body on a stake as a warning to future raiders. You couldn't miss seeing this pit. Oh, yeah, even I noticed it, added Trevor. Fake traps are real traps. We're sticking to the woods, said Robert. They resumed their course around the hill, but with a heightened focus on the ground before them. In one clearing, Robert stopped. He motioned for Martin and Trevor to come alongside. Listen. He tipped his head to the left, down the hill. The faint sound of male voices talking to each other was barely audible. Occasional banging, wood on wood, was more noticeable. A woman's angry shout sent shivers down Martin's spine. Much like how a parent can read a child's cry for whether it was pain or anger or fear, Martin could hear fear amidst the anger in the woman's shout. As much as he wanted to press on, his compulsive rescue disorder wouldn't allow him to ignore it. I don't like that, Martin said. He pulled his carbine out of its scabbard. You keep saying how you don't like delays, protested Robert. I don't, but I don't like the sound of that either. Let's go have a look. If it's just some domestic argument, we leave him to it and be on our way. And if it's something else, asked Trevor. I don't know, said Martin. I don't know what it is. That's why we need to find out. We? Trevor, you stay here with the horses, said Robert. Yes, that means you'll have to get down. Keep a hold of all of their reins, but let them hang limp so they can eat. That'll keep them busy and happy for a while. Robert pulled his rifle from its scabbard and followed Martin as he crept toward the voices. Martin walked like a hunter, often pausing to listen. The male voices didn't sound angry. If anything, they sounded busy or somewhat excited. Through the leaves, a pale yellow house came into view. Martin and Robert stayed well back into the foliage to remain hidden. The windows of the house had plywood over them. Martin saw a man in dark clothes run up to the house from the woods to his right. The man paused with his back against the yellow siding before grabbing one corner of the plywood and yanking on it several times. Nails creaked, but the plywood remained. A man and a woman's voice inside the house shouted to each other. Again, the shouts were a mixture of anger and fear. The man in dark clothes ran back to the woods. Martin could then see that three more men were hiding in the trees. They were talking to each other loudly, in rapid bursts. Another of those men ran up to the house and yanked on the other lower corner of the plywood. This time, the plywood panel fell away. The man sprinted back to the woods. The man and woman inside shouted to each other again. 
Martin's mind raced. Were there more people inside the house? If it was only one man and one woman versus four raiders, the odds weren't good. If they had even one gun, it would even the odds. No shots were fired at the retreating invader. Did the man not have a gun? Perhaps he did, but was low on ammunition. A large, freshly tilled garden beside the house indicated that the man and woman were planning to survive the collapse like most everyone else. They made their home more defensible, but their resources seemed limited. The noise from the raiders caught Robert's ear as the three of them traveled by. Were there no neighbors within earshot? Well, maybe not. No one was coming to the couple's aid. Did the man not have a radio? Perhaps he had called for help, but the hilltop group didn't have enough resources to risk helping this couple. Maybe this couple was excluded from the hilltop group for some reason. There was no way for Martin to know. The bottom line was that they appeared to be on their own, outnumbered, and about to be invaded. Do you really want to get tangled up in all of that? whispered Robert. You've got your wife to think of. One of the raiders threw a potato-sized rock. It smashed through the window. The woman shouted again, but Martin also heard the terrified scream of a child. The raiders had kindled a small fire amid the trees. I know, said Martin, but we can't just leave these people to the raiders. I don't know anything about them, but from the garden and the child, I'm guessing they're not people who deserve to die at the hands of these thugs. Well, so what are you thinking? asked Robert. The raiders might have guns and just aren't using them all yet. I thought of that, said Martin. Our advantage is that the raiders don't know we're here. They act like they think no one is coming to help these people. If we took a couple of them out, it would even the odds. Martin studied the trees in front of him and to his right. How about if I take up a position by, uh, say, that big pine? From there, I could see behind the trees they're hiding behind. You take up a position up there. Uh, maybe behind that fallen tree. Once I shoot, they'll probably figure out which direction it came from and adjust their cover. You can get one more. Two to two seems manageable for the people in the house. Robert nodded and crouch-walked to the fallen tree. Martin slowly crept down to the pine. In a prone position, he rested the forestock on a broad root of the tree. The range wasn't far, so his lack of a scope wasn't a problem. He had practiced with iron sights at longer ranges than this before. When Robert was in position, he gave Martin a nod. Martin nodded back. He settled his front sight post on the ribs of the nearest raider crouched behind the tree. I don't know your story. You might be another Carson, swept up for political crimes. Perhaps not. What I do know is that you're trying to attack a mother and her child. I can't be like those first two men in the Good Samaritan parable and just look the other way. Martin took a deep breath and let part of it out slowly. He held the sight steady on the man's ribs as he slowly squeezed the trigger. Crack! The shot shattered the relative silence of the woods. The raider collapsed, screaming, gripping his thigh. Blast! Low! I must have pulled it. Martin hugged the rifle to his chest and rolled to his right until he came up behind a medium-sized maple. When he had the carbine settled beside the tree, he could see two of the raiders pointing in different directions. The one-shot rule, thought Martin. He held his fire 
waiting for Robert. The raiders guessed Martin's general direction. He couldn't see much of them as they had adjusted their hiding places. Robert's shot boomed and echoed. One of the raiders fell from behind the tree. He writhed on the ground, but didn't get up. When the remaining two thugs adjusted their position based on Robert's shot, a pop sounded from the house. One of the raiders arched his back and fell backward. So, you did have a gun. Well, good. Must have to be stingy with your ammo. Martin gestured with his head that he and Robert should get out of there and back to their horses. Three down, one left, said Martin, as they crouched jogged through the brush. That should turn the tables. Uh, we'd better get clear of here quickly, said Robert. Gunfire tends to attract attention, usually the wrong kind. The remainder of the afternoon was far less eventful. The power lines crossed some highways, but the three men saw no one. The meandering trails between the tall truss towers were wide and sandy at times. At other times, the path was little more than a single-file track through low scrub brush. For Martin's taste, it was far too quiet. It left his mind free to swirl with worries. How was Margaret doing? How was Judy? He wished he could have seen Margaret and said goodbye before he left. Oh, what if she dies while I'm gone? I'd never been able to tell her. Yeah, he shook off the dark visions. He was trying to force his mind to keep focused on success, not the possibilities of failure. Ah, uh, the sun's going to be down behind the trees soon, Robert said. We should find a spot for a camp while we can still see what we're doing. Well, what about that other side of this hill? Martin pointed to the hill ahead of them. A dozen yards into the woods, near the top of the hill, they found a clearing where a tall oak had fallen during the winter. The understory brush hadn't been able to colonize the circle of light. Only a few scraggly blueberry bushes interrupted the leaf litter. Oh, this ought to be good, said Robert. We can dig a fire hole by the fallen tree. That'll act as a light mask to any view from downslope. Yeah, these woods are pretty dense, said Martin. We should be well screened. It'll be hard for anyone to creep up through all this understory. It didn't take long to set up their minimal camp of a tarp staked against a fallen tree. One man would sleep while two watched. After boiling their river water, they all enjoyed a warm cup of corn grits. The small game jerky was tough and took a lot of chewing. Trevor harvested some wintergreen from the forest floor. Sipping hot wintergreen tea helped soften the jerky and compensated for the rapidly cooling evening. Robert took the first turn at sleeping. He settled into his wool blanket under a tarp near the fire hole. Martin and Trevor took the first watch, perched at the base of an old pine a few yards farther up the hill. They needed to be farther from the fire to maintain night vision. They could see above the underbrush for fifty yards. Uh, it's too quiet, whispered Martin. I know lookouts shouldn't talk, but falling asleep is worse. Uh, what about those Red Sox? Trevor chuckled. Oh, they don't look too good this season, do they? Yes, so what was with the side of Andy's face? Martin asked. I didn't get a chance to ask him uh, before we left. I figured he knocked himself down while practicing with his bow staff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that does happen. No, no, Mara threw him across the river. What? Oh, yeah. He went to her camp with another little bag of beech nuts. Uh, I guess they talked. Oh, really? 
Martin was surprised at Andy's persistence. Oh, yeah, but it didn't go well. She dragged him over to the river and threw him on the other side. Aw, Andy must be feeling pretty bad now. Oh, not really. He took it as a good thing. He figured Mara had beat him up worse or maybe just outright killed him. So he took being thrown over the river as a good sign that she was softening up to him. Uh, not sure if he could survive too many such good signs like that, said Martin. I told him he ought to let that chick go and move on. But he's all convinced that she's his one and onlyest soulmate. He's really stuck on that soulmate thing. <laughs> Tell me about it, Martin said with deadpan. Andy was uh, telling me that uh, you got a soulmate too, Trevor said hesitantly. I never met this Susan chick, but Andy told me she was hot. Martin felt an automatic impulse to disagree, but he didn't. Susan was not the sort of hot like a swimsuit model, but she was very pretty and had a charm that was quicksand to the heart. Years ago, Martin had imagined that getting married would vaccinate his heart against all others. For many years, he was right. Susan proved that his immunity was an illusion. Even though faithfully devoted to Margaret, it didn't prevent feelings arising for someone else, too. Yeah, Andy says you've been missing her ever since she left. Uh, that's why you've been moping around so much. I did not mope around, Martin objected. Uh, did I? Trevor shrugged. Oh, I got no way of knowing, man. Never seen you before she was gone, only the after you. You did have your gloomy spells. Well, Andy's just a young romantic. I don't put any stock in his soulmate stuff. A relationship is what you make it, not some edict from the stars. Oh, bummer, Trevor said softly. I was kind of hoping there was something to it. I mean, like, there'd be someone out there uh, just for me. Oh, Martin felt terrible about being so critical. I mean, life back in Manch was tough, but the gang always had women around, you know. Lots of them were smoking hot, too. They was all players, though, smiling up this dude or that because they thought he was on his way up in the gang. Did you have some smiling you up? Martin asked. He stared into the moonlit understory to avoid seeming too eager for personal gossip on the social life of gang members. Oh, a couple. At first I thought it was great, them hanging on me, laughing like I was the funniest thing since Chris Rock. They do you favors, too, uh, you know. I thought life couldn't be no better than that. But? Eh, yeah, but. I wasn't game enough for Scooge. When I didn't move up into ranks, they was gone like roaches when the lights come out. All that smooching and laughing and stuff, all fake. They talk about love, but there ain't no love in them. They was just using me. They went and hung on the next guy up. Then he thought he was the funniest thing since Grease Rock. Oh, sorry, man said Martin. What does one say to the disillusioned and abandoned? Yeah, yeah, me too. So I was kind of hoping Andy was on to something, you know, that somewhere out there was a chick that I was supposed to be with that just wasn't using me. Well, I like Andy and all, said Martin. But don't let his soulmate idea get you bummed. There isn't just one girl for you out there, somewhere in the universe, like a needle in a haystack. Could be lots of girls that'd be good for you. The thing is, you got to work at it. Make it happen. Well, what do you mean, work at it? Well, what's to do? Martin had to think. He'd put himself out on thin ice. Well, uh, say you find a girl you like, and she likes you. 
You don't just hope that she's the one. You make her the one. You're one and only. Make it a one? That's like kidnapping. That ain't love. No, no, not kidnapping. You don't make her do anything. You change yourself. That isn't always easy. Remember how you felt when the other women abandoned you? Trevor's head hung down, but he nodded. Well, you promised yourself that you would never, ever do that to her. You'd stick with her no matter what. Even if someone intriguing comes along later, Martin thought. This episode was released the day before November 11th, which in the United States had been renamed as Veterans Day. In the UK and Commonwealth nations, it's known as Remembrance Day. Originally, it had been Armistice Day, commemorating November 11, 1918, the day that World War I ended. For a lot of people, this day is just another day off to do whatever it is they do on their days off. There was a solemnness to those earlier Armistice Day ceremonies, recognizing the sacrifices many nations paid, but there was also a sense of justification. Yes, the war had been terrible, but at least those millions who died gave their lives to make the world safe for democracy, or that they fought the war to end all wars. It was a terrible but a noble sacrifice. That sentiment lasted less than 20 years. People still waged war, not as big as the Great War, but war continued to exist nonetheless. Democracy remained fragile and vulnerable. Communism proved to be a bigger threat than the Kaiser ever could have been. The great disillusionment set in. The latent idealism of those early commemorations, that somehow those nine million sacrificed themselves for the betterment of all mankind, had faded into a sort of sad cynicism. All those people died pretty much in vain. There would always be another war, and democracy would never really be safe. Mankind was still just as broken as before. And yet, mankind still has that divine spark within, too. We haven't yet been reduced to simply self-centered consumer units. Mothers still sacrifice themselves for their children. Fathers still put themselves in harm's way to protect their families. Good Samaritans still come to the aid of strangers. I included a bit of that sentiment in this last chapter, where Martin and Robert help the unknown family being besieged by raiders. Maybe it's just my own optimism leaking out that I imagine that people in a chaotic world without the usual rule of law won't all devolve into ruthless savages. There will still be good Samaritans, even in Samaria. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with Chapter 21.